Thank you and welcome to Scripture on Creation. I'm Scott Kump. And I'm Dr. Ben Scripture. Dr. Scripture, you've come across an article published in the online version of Christianity Today that you feel is very important to discuss. Mm -hmm. And so you're going to read several excerpts from that article and explain some of its implications. That's right, Scott. I don't regularly read Christianity Today, but a pastor friend of mine, John Hayden from Mason, Michigan, alerted me to this article and asked me what I thought about it. And after reading it, as you pointed out, Scott, I felt it was important to address some of the points made in it. The title of the article in ChristianityToday.com, published on January 30th, 2020, is What If We Don't Have to Choose Between Evolution and Adam and Eve? The article is in the form of an interview done by Rebecca Randall with S. Joshua Swamidas, who is a computational biologist. What? is a computational biologist? Good question. Computational biology, among other things, uses mathematical modeling and software simulation techniques to explore biological systems. Living things are so complex, it takes the computational power of superfast computers to analyze all the physical interactions and relationships we are finding within cells or between organisms. Sounds like a computational biologist might be the kind of scientist who would do some of the research in genetics you've discussed lately. <laughs> Very good conclusion, Scott. In fact, what Dr. Swamidas writes about in a book he recently published is genetics and its relationship to genealogies, in particular the genealogies of the Bible. So let's look at what he says about these subjects and how they relate to evolution and Adam and Eve. Now remember, the title of the article is, What If We Don't Have to Choose Between Evolution and Adam and Eve? And this gives a clue as to what he proposes. His book's title is The Genealogical Adam and Eve, The Surprising Science of Universal Ancestry. And his thesis is that the evolution of modern man from ape-like animals and the special creation of Adam and Eve as the original parental ancestors of the human race can both be true and accepted on scientific and biblical grounds. Hmm. And his key proposal for how this can be done is that humanity's genetic ancestry needs to be understood as being distinct, that is, different than our genealogical ancestry. In other words, they are separate concepts, and the distinction between them needs to be taken into consideration when interpreting the Bible. In particular, the creation of Adam and Eve and the record of their descendants, from Cain and Seth all the way to us who are alive today. Okay, but Dr. Scripture, I must say at the start, I don't see the difference between genetic and genealogical ancestry. I mean, we get our genes, our genetic makeup, from our ancestors who make up our genealogy. Aren't they the same thing? Well, Scott, that's similar to what John Hayden asked when he referred me to this article. In fact, his question was, had I ever heard of this distinction being drawn between genetic and genealogical ancestry in Scripture? So let's find out just what Dr. Swamidas means and then discuss the significance of his proposals. Reading from the Christianity Today article, in his book, the Genealogical Adam and Eve, The Surprising Science of Universal Ancestry, Swamidas affirms both evolution and the traditional reading of the Genesis creation account. 
Drawing on findings from his field of computational biology, he contends that the lineage of Adam and Eve should be traced using genealogy rather than genetics. Viewing the origins debate through a genealogical prism, Swami Das presents a scenario in which the special creation of Adam and Eve thousands of years ago happens on a parallel track with evolution. The book carries a wide range of endorsements from theologians, atheist biologists, and believing scientists from across the origins debate spectrum. Okay, I have to stop you for a moment. Given that he proposes the special creation of Adam and Eve, regardless of evolutionary considerations, doesn't that require God to be involved? <laughs> so how could atheist biologists possibly endorse this idea? Scott, I do not know. But the fact that they apparently do is an indication that there probably is a problem with at least some of Swami Das's proposals. And let me inject right here. Our concern should be the accurate reading of the Bible. And I take exception to the term traditional reading mm. of Genesis, as though tradition has historically dictated the meaning of Scripture. The meaning of what is written in Genesis is not determined by tradition, as though one generation finds the meaning to be one thing, but just as legitimately, another generation finds its meaning to be something else. The meaning is defined by the author. What he meant is the accurate reading. You talked about that in a previous program, calling it the originalist interpretation. If you want to know the correct meaning of Scripture, determine what was originally meant by the author. Exactly. And with respect to originality, the idea of Adam and Eve being the result of special creation thousands of years ago, while at the same time, human-like animals had evolved from apes, has been around for a long time. I see no difference between what he proposes and what has been around for a long time other than his making a distinction between genetic and genealogical ancestry in the Bible. So, Scott, you asked the question, John Hayden asked the question, and even the interviewer, Rebecca Randall, asked the question. And here it is. In the article, she asks, quote, Your research is about genealogy, not genetics. Could you explain the difference for those who might interchange those terms? Why is this so key? Unquote. And Swamidas answers, There's been a lot of conflict about how science expresses its understanding of Adam and Eve. It has to do with misunderstanding the word ancestor. We can understand it in the genetic sense to mean someone we get our DNA from, or we can mean it in a genealogical sense, meaning someone whose lineage we descend from. Genetics works in a non-intuitive way. For example, my parents are both equally 100% my genealogical ancestors, and the same is true with my grandparents and great-grandparents. But my parents are only one half of my genetic ancestry. My grandparents are one quarter. My great-grandparents are one eighth. Genetic ancestry dilutes to the point where the majority of our genealogical ancestors pass on no DNA. Why is that important? Scripture doesn't tell us about genetic ancestry. It does, however, tell us about genealogical ancestry. Historically, we've believed that Adam and Eve are the ancestors of everyone. Then we can ask, does this mean genetic ancestors or genealogical ancestors? Well, Scripture can't possibly be talking about genetic ancestry. It has to be talking about genealogical ancestry. Okay, I'm going to stop right there, because this is the crux of the issue. 
he's made several statements that need to be evaluated. For example, he said, the majority of our genealogical ancestors pass on no DNA. Well, that statement is defining what it means to pass on DNA in an extremely narrow sense. Yes, the exact DNA sequence of genes and intergenic DNA we get from our parents and preceding ancestors decreases each generation. However, the genetic information is essentially the same. It's human. And all that genetic information that was placed in Adam and Eve was the source of DNA for the entire population of humans, from the people before the flood in Noah's day to everyone alive today, each person being made up of the mixed up, chopped mm. up, even mutated genetic information. In other words, the DNA that God created when he formed Adam of the dust of the ground. So when Swamidas said, Scripture doesn't tell us about genetic ancestry, it does, however, tell us about genealogical ancestry, I submit, except for his very narrow way of defining genetic ancestry, Scripture tells us about our genealogical ancestry as well as our genetic ancestry. And then his statement, Scripture can't possibly be talking about genetic ancestry, is simply wrong. It can be, and is, talking about our genetic history. That is the source, the origin of our human genome, our human DNA. That, I submit, is accurate interpretation of the Genesis account of creation. However, Swamidas, assuming evolutionary theory to be true, proposes that a massive amount of additional genetic information has been mixed into Adam and Eve's descendants through breeding with the other human-like organisms alive at the time God created Adam and Eve. Sounds like he is proposing that there was a whole population of, let's say, human-looking organisms that had evolved from ape-like animals, just as evolution claims, mm -hmm. and then God picked one and made it into Adam. <laughs> well, I'm not sure he means that exactly, although he may allow for that. But here's what he says, quote, If we keep straight what the science is actually saying, the story of Genesis could be true as literally as you could imagine it, with Adam being created by dust and God breathing into his nostrils and Eve being created from his rib. But evolution is happening outside the garden, and there are people out there who God created in a different way and who end up intermingling with Adam and Eve's descendants. It's not actually in conflict with evolutionary science, unquote. Well, that goes along with what some people think is the answer to where Cain's wife came from. <laughs> there were other people on earth when God created Adam and Eve. Yes, and if it was true, it would create a real theological problem, given several doctrines taught elsewhere in the Bible. Now, I know it is an argument from silence, but there is nothing in the Bible that indicates there were other human-like beings on earth when Adam and Eve were created. And why does it say in Genesis 2.20, so the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found if there were creatures like him around. The only reason anyone comes up with the idea that there was a whole population of human-like organisms around is to accommodate evolution. Yep. Swamidas even alludes to his motivation to incorporate evolution into his understanding of creation in his testimony. He says, I was raised a young earth creationist and I moved to understanding evolutionary science and seeing legitimacy to it. Well, you know, the same thing occurred in my life, and I went through various attempts to harmonize evolution with the biblical account of creation. 
But when I was confronted with the original and true meaning of the text, that is, what Moses had to have meant, I had to make a choice. Believe what the Bible says, or believe what a bunch of scientists say, the bulk of whom are rank atheists. And by God's grace, I chose to believe his word as written. Good choice. (laughs) Now, Dr. Scripture, I know there is more in the article than what we've had time to discuss. For the sake of those who might like to read more of the article for themselves, shall we give the citation again? That's a good idea, Scott. Okay, you can find the article online by going to ChristianityToday.com, open the search bar, and type Swamidas, that's S-W-A-M-I-D-A-S-S. The article, What If We Don't Have to Choose Between Evolution and Adam and Eve?, will come up. So, the article proposes, what if we don't have to choose between evolution and Adam and Eve? What if we don't have to choose? (laughs) The Word of God forces us to make many choices. Some can be more difficult than others, but Joshua put it this way in Joshua 24, 15. And if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. And then he goes on to say, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And that's not what I say, that's what Scripture says. 